0: Truly, we serve a good God, and I think you're not only going to see that today um, in the portion of the passage where the father gets to see his son deliver it, but I think we're going to see it throughout the scripture that we're studying today. Um, I used to to always say that Amazing Grace was going to be, you know, heaven's uh, national anthem, but I got to tell you, the goodness of God has got to be in competition with that for me uh, because it is my theme song. Because God has truly been so good and so faithful in my life and uh, if that's not your experience hold on You know the Bible tells us to taste and to see that the Lord is good Uh, And I pray that we will get a taste of his goodness this morning um, So that we can see just how good he really is and not only that um, I think as we listen you'll see that it is What the world is longing for and I pray that one of the things we'll do is to be hungry to go out and share that goodness. Uh, You know, if you're old enough, you'll remember a famous tagline uh, from Coke they used to do in their advertisements, uh, and it was the real thing. Coke was the real thing. And that was building on the fact that they were the original Coca-Cola. I think they came out about 12 years before Pepsi, and they kind of liked to stick it to Pepsi and reminding them that they were first. Um, And it's one of the greatest marketing campaigns of all time, it was extremely successful. So much so that Coke has used it multiple times, back in, they rekindled it over and over again because of its success. But it was championed by the brand manager of Coke at the time, his name was Ira Herbert. And he's quoted as saying this about the campaign, it responds to research which shows that young people seek the real, the original, and the natural as an escape from phoniness. And I don't think that desire is limited to young people. I think all of us seek the real and the natural and want to escape from the phoniness that we see around us. You know, so much of the world looks for the real thing because so much of life, we are all busy wearing a mask. Um, We are so often trying to mask uh, away from the real thing. And I see this, you see it in our lives, you see it even in the church so often where we come wearing a mask rather than the plain self and allowing ourselves to just represent ourselves. Um, And what originally attracted me, I know, to Jesus himself in reading the Bible, was how real he was in all circumstances, how plain and upfront and to the point he was. But the road to the real thing is hard, and it's costly. And that's what Daniel was teaching us last week. Um, In his plain, simple way, we read, Jesus say this, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses it for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And so Jesus is basically saying, if you want the real thing, you got to (laughs) die. And that's costly. And that's hard to swallow. Um, And... It kind of begs the question okay, that's what I have to give up, but what do I get in return? Um, you know, what am I getting in exchange for my life? Um, and as Daniel shared with us last week, we can take comfort because the one who makes that offer is a loving, caring, all powerful creator who is good. And his love for us is such that he would not leave us in doubt as to what we get in return for the life that we need to give up. And so last week, we walked through the cost of discipleship, even though, as Daniel shared, salvation is a free gift. It's one that will cost you everything, because God demands your life of you. And in order to live, you must die. But this week, we get to see what we get in return. And that's where we're going to begin as we look to Mark 9 supposed to be covering Mark 9, 2 through 29. I'm going to begin in verse 1, because I think verse 1 is important here. So uh, if you've got your Bibles, open it to Mark 9. We're going to read from 9, 1 all the way down to verse 29, uh, which we'll be covering today. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, And he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it as written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, at is, as it is written of him. And then when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. And when he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher... By anything but prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, for the demonstration that we have here of Jesus's power, both in his transfiguration and in his command over even the demons who obey him at his every command. Father, we pray today to understand that power, its source, to understand um, that it is a part of the great kingdom that you're inviting us to. May we see that kingdom before our eyes, and may our hearts be stirred to desire, the real thing, Lord God, which comes through Jesus alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so we begin with Jesus having told us the cost of discipleship, and now he's promising those that are there that they're out of this very group, that there would be some who would have the privilege of seeing the fullness of the kingdom of God in all its power. And then Mark lets us know um, what happens next is directly tied to this promise, because it begins with this conjunction. It says, and after six days, after Jesus made this statement, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and led them up to the mountain uh, for this experience. So six days later, Jesus is going to fulfill this promise that those standing there would get to see the kingdom in all its power. And the Bible tells us what this looked like. looks like, that he was transfigured before them, that his clothes became radiant, intensely white. Uh, whiter than anybody could bleach them, and that there appeared to him along with him, Elijah and Moses, as they were talking to Jesus. And then a Peter, of course, who's always talking when he should be listening, says to them, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let's make three tents to commemorate this event, Um, for he didn't know what to say. But then Peter's voice is overshadowed by a greater voice, which comes and says, shush, Peter. This is my son. Listen to him. And then they looked around and no one was with them. And so Jesus takes this moment to reveal himself, his true self, to Peter, to John, and to James. And Peter will later appeal to this, um, to this very moment. In 2 Peter chapter, uh, chapter, 1, verse 16, he references this as he gives his testimony of why he knows that Jesus is the Christ. He says this, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We got to see the Lord in all his glory. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. And so this is the appeal of the gospel, of the good news. This is what makes Christianity so distinct from everything else that is out there. Because even though it requires faith to come to Jesus, Christian faith is not like faith that you hear in the world. It is not a blind faith. It's not just a faith that we are supposed to believe and hope that someday God's going to live up to those promises. No, 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 no. Peter says our faith isn't built on myths. It is built on historical facts. We saw his glory. We saw his resurrection. We saw Jesus in all of his power. We were eyewitnesses, and we have faithfully written this down so that you, 2,000 years later, may believe. You see, Jesus didn't just promise eternal life, for which we need to believe and hope someday that we will experience this eternal life. Jesus doesn't just promise us heaven or nirvana. Jesus himself came back to life, He died, he conquered death, he rose again, and he ascended as a living example of that promise so that our promise would be established in fact and not just in a hope that someday we get to experience all the wonders that God has promised us. And so when Jesus tells us the cost of discipleship is to die to self, but the promise is eternal life, he now reveals to Peter, James, and John, these disciples what that promise of eternal life looks like. He leaves no doubt or questions in their mind. And he should leave no doubt or question in our mind. Because these eyewitnesses has faithfully given to us exactly what they experience. And what do they experience? He reveals himself in his glory. And standing beside him are two faithful witnesses to what God has done. Moses and Elijah. And that's what we want to look at. We want to look at what is revealed to us about the kingdom of heaven from this encounter. Because first, we get to see what? We get to see the glory of Jesus revealed, right? This is the person that Peter and James, they've been hanging around for two and a half years, and they've seen him do some miracles. You know, they've seen and heard his words and how powerful they are. They've seen the reaction of the crowd. But now they see him in all of his glory, and they are terrified, You know, John later on is going to record in the book of Revelation that when he sees Jesus, again, someone who walked with Jesus all of his life and even saw Jesus uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he sees him in his kingdom and his glory, what happens to John? He falls as his feet as if dead. And this tells us something about God. It tells us that God is both awesome, he's an awesome God, but he's also an awful God. Awful in its original sense that it is terrifying to meet the true and living God. He is awe-inspiring in all that that word means. And that is the picture we get of Jesus, even to those who knew him best. And then we see something else. We see Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah in his kingdom. And this should tell us something. This tells us that this awesome, awful, awe-inspiring God is also immensely personal. That in the kingdom of heaven, we get to have direct fellowship with God in all of his glory. I mean, that is an incredible thought. This is Elijah and Moses who've come down, and they're just kind of casually talking to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And we don't get to know what they're talking about. But what an incredible picture. What a beautiful picture of the familiarity that they must have and the intimacy that they must have with the Lord of glory. And that is a promise to us, that in the kingdom of heaven, God is not a distant God who sits on a throne far above, that in all of his glory, here he is still sharing this intimate moment with his followers. But then also notice something else. Notice that Elijah and Moses need no introduction. Peter, James, and John instantly know who they are. Now, you might argue that Peter, James, and John, of course they know who Elijah and Moses are. These are Jewish heroes. Everybody knows who Elijah and Moses is. But there were no pictures back then. It's not like Peter, James, and John grew up with little Moses and Elijah action figures, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's Moses and Elijah. No. And nonetheless... They instantly recognized Moses and Elijah. And this should tell us something else about the kingdom of heaven. It tells us that in the kingdom of heaven, the promise that is given to us in 1 Corinthians 13, 12 is fulfilled. In that scripture, we are told, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now we know in part, but then we shall know fully, even as we are fully Known. Now that is an awesome promise of the kingdom of heaven. Whose heart does not long to be known fully? We all long to be known as we are and loved for who we are. We all long to remove the masks that we wear on a daily basis. As I started this this sermon, we all want the real thing the opportunity to be real and to experience other people being real with us. But so often we're afraid. We know that to be real with other people is to make ourselves vulnerable and to risk the pain and hurt of rejection. We have all felt that sting of rejection. We all know what it's like, not only to fear that we won't be loved, but the ultimate fear that we are unlovable, and that's why we get rejected. That no one will ultimately want us or want to be with us or care for us. And here we see the promise that in the kingdom of our Father, not only can we be fully known for who we are, but we are fully loved and fully accepted. Instantly recognized and able to instantly recognize all those that are around us. When Jesus promised that some would see the kingdom of God in all of its power, it includes this. He was talking about his glory, his power, but also the intimacy and the familiarity of the kingdom, that we would ultimately be able to experience what we most long for. God wants us to know that the promise of heaven and the joy that we can expect is complete and full and will complete us when we get into the kingdom. And this leaves an interesting question, though. Because why didn't Jesus share this with all of his disciples? Why just Peter, James, and John? Were the other disciples somehow not worthy? And that begs a further question. Why doesn't God reveal himself to everyone like this? Right? Why doesn't Jesus just plop here, show us his glory, make himself clear so that we all know who he is and make clear that it is his kingdom for everybody? Is God hiding himself? Does God wear a mask the same way humans do? Does he not want everyone to know him? So first, I want to challenge the question. I know I raised it, but we should ask ourselves, If you're asking yourself this kind of question. We often put expectations on God that we would never give to ourselves, right? No one here goes up to anybody and says, hey, Ben, why don't you treat everybody like your wife? Why don't you share your most intimate details with everybody? That's a silly question. We all understand that we have different relations with different people. And that's to be expected. And yet, we might ask that of God. Why doesn't God just show himself to everybody? Well, because God doesn't have that intimate relationship with everybody. And God is like we are. He's more revealing to those who are closer to him and have given themselves to him. Why should God reveal himself equally to everybody? That's the question we should be asking. But let's put that aside. Because the Bible makes clear that the very opposite is true. That God's greatest desire is to be known by us the same way that we know him. And yet, the Bible makes it clear that God does hide himself. You know, in one of the greatest ironic statements in the, in the Bible, in Isaiah 45, 15, it, it literally says this. It says, truly you are a God who hides himself. O God of Israel, the Savior. What kind of Savior hides himself? He's a hidden Savior. And there are times when God seems to hide himself from us during some of our greatest needs or most difficult times. And we want to know, how does this make any sense? How does this God who makes all these promises, why is he hiding himself? And we make sense of it by understanding and relying upon the nature and character of God, exactly as Daniel shared with us last week. Because even in our example today, we're ultimately going to see that it is God's mercy and grace that prevents him from showing himself in all of his glory to all of his disciples. You see, whereas man hides himself to protect himself, that's what we do. We wear a mask because we want to protect ourselves. God hides himself to protect us. God hides himself to protect the other. And to understand this, we need to fully understand that God, that man does not reject God because he doesn't know God. You see, the Bible teaches us that what can be known about God is absolutely plain. Not only in the general revelation of nature, we look around and we see all that God has created. And deep down inside, we all know this came from somewhere. That nothing comes from nothing, as the song says, right? Somewhere, somebody had to stir to create all that we see around us, the marvelous nature that we see. That's called general revelation. But we also know that God is real from his specific revelation because we have a historic fact in Jesus Christ who came to this earth, died on a cross and resurrected. And, you know, this isn't a sermon for it, but there's more evidence for the resurrection than for, many, for most historical things that we take for granted. Um, and so we have the historical evidence of, of God's specific re- revelation. And so the Bible says that there's no sense of not knowing that there is a God. So man does not reject God because he doesn't know him. What the Bible makes clear is that man rejects God because having seen the light, having known that there is a God, man's preference is for darkness. That's the heart of man, and that's the reality. And the examples throughout the Bible are clear, but the reality is we know this just from our own experience. How many times have we come across a scripture and simply said, I can't accept that. I like the rest of the Bible, but I don't like what this has to say. And we ourselves often want to reject the word of God. And we need to understand that to reject the word of God, to reject the written word, is to reject the living word, which is Jesus himself. And so if our hearts reject the light in exchange for the darkness, and we call ourselves Christians, how much more does the world reject the light even though they see it? And so we need to recognize that seeing Jesus as who he is for those who love the darkness, that would not change anything. If Jesus showed up here in all of his glory and walked around, there are people who will still reject Jesus. We know this to be true. The first example is the very first man. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden and turned their backs on him, even though they had seen his glory. Right? We see this in the example of Satan. Satan was an angelic being of the highest order who stood in the very presence of God in his kingdom, in all of his glory. And yet Satan fell and rejected God. Isaiah 14 gives us the picture of this rejection. Isaiah 14, 12, it tells us how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations. Why? Because you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds and I will make myself like the Most High. This is what God knows about our hearts. The revelation of God's glory does not inspire everyone in awe to worship Him. For many, it stirs jealousy and envy and the desire for them to be God themselves. And we don't even need to appeal to God to know this is true because we see it in our own relations just with other human beings. How many times do we see someone who succeeds or has gotten a promotion and we go, he didn't deserve that, I deserve that, and we want that glory for ourselves? How many times do we see somebody do something that's relatively impressive and we go, I could do that, that's no big deal? That's our heart. It stirs pride and jealousy and envy instead of stirring the awe that God deserves. That is the heart of darkness. And rather than see us fall like Satan, God in his mercy reveals just enough of himself to entice us to want to get to know him. He reveals enough that we might develop the faith to pursue him. And then when he saves us, he begins to give us the real revelation of himself over time as our hearts can bear it. And for those who are more mature and stronger and are going to see the awe in his glory. He allows them to see the full revelation of who he is. That is God in his mercy. Because to do otherwise is to invite us to heap sin upon sin and judgment upon judgment. The Bible makes it clear that we are responsible for what we know. And to know God in all of his glory and to reject him is to put upon ourselves the same judgment that Satan deserves for having been in the presence of God and having rejected him. And so God, in his mercy, doesn't give us the full revelation of himself. And Jesus knew that amongst his followers, there were those who would not respond to that glory. Judas, he had seen all the miracles. He had seen Jesus' teaching. He had heard his words. And yet he's going to betray him. The Pharisees stood day in and day out before Jesus. We're going to see in a few minutes the same scribes are going to be arguing with his disciples again. They had heard the good news. They had seen the works of Jesus and rejected him. And so God, in his mercy, did not invite Judas to experience the full revelation. Because God did not want to heap judgment upon judgment upon to him who himself was destined to be the son of destruction. That is a good and loving God. But that does not negate the invitation to all of us today. Because God's desire is still to reveal himself fully to those who would come humbly and accept him as he is. In what is known as the high priestly prayer, John 17, Jesus makes this clear. Jesus is praying out to his Father, and he reveals the heart of God. Listen to what he says in verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory. That you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you that have sent me. And I have made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love to which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That is God's intent to continuously make himself known to us in greater and greater revelation for those who will seek him with all their heart. But to those who have denied themselves, picked up their cross, and are willing to follow him, this is the promise. This is the promise that God gives him. To those of us who are prepared to bring the real us to the real Jesus, we will get to see his glory. All right, that takes us through verse 8. Verse 8. Only 21 more verses to go. Uh, Daniel didn't warn you guys. Uh, I grew up mostly in Pentecostal churches. Typical sermon, three to five hours. No big deal. Uh, I'm joking, of course. We should only be about another hour or so. We should be good. Um, We're going to cover the rest of chapter 9 quickly, as you can imagine. I'm not going to get to go into detail uh, with, with a lot of the rest of this. But there are some things... Uh, we want to look at. And particularly as we get to the very end, God is going to wonderfully reveal to us, how do we make this connection? What is that connection that we want to keep? In verses 9 through 13, which I'm not going to cover at all, the disciples ask Jesus, why, must, you know, why do they say Elijah has to come first? And I would really encourage you to go back and take some time and study those verses because Jesus in them teaches us how to read prophecy he alludes to the fact that John the Baptist was the promised coming of Elijah. Um, And in so doing, he teaches us how God gives us prophecy. God gives us prophecy by relating things to us that are known to things that are unknown. Nobody would have known who John the Baptist is, and the promise was that an Elijah-type figure would come beforehand. And so it's a great way to understand prophecy as you go back in the Old Testament and you're looking to, to understand the prophetic word. And so I'll leave that to you to study on your own. But then as they are coming off the mountain um, that has come to be known as the Mount of Transfiguration, they are met with this scene. A man has come to the disciples and he has asked them to cast out a demon out of his son. And the disciples are unable to cast out uh, this demon. And um, because of this, some kind of argument ensues. We aren't told exactly what the argument is, but we are told that it's between the disciples and the scribes. And we can kind of guess, right? We can kind of guess what the scribes are saying. They're kind of pointing the finger at the disciples and they're like, ha ha, you can't do this. You know, you must not know the real God, blah, blah, blah. Um, You're following Jesus. He's a cult and all these other things. Now, of course, the irony is uh, that these scribes can't cast out the demon either. (laughs) And so who understands why they're making a fuss about this? Um, But that's the world so often. You see, the world is going to apply different standards to us. Than it does to itself. And we just have to expect that. The world is always looking for ways. To poke holes in the truth. And the reality of who God is. And we can't be disturbed by that. And we also have to recognize. That what we cannot do. Is make miracles. The uh, the foundation of our testimony. Because if that is what it is. It's not going to work out. The, The foundation of our testimony. Is Jesus Christ. Crucified. Resurrected ascended into the heavens, having died on our behalf. That is the foundation of our testimony. Um, And that has to be it, and that alone. And as Jesus comes down off of this mountain, um, Jesus responds to this scene rather harshly, right? He says, what's going on here? The man says, hey, I brought my son to your disciples. They couldn't cast out the demons. And Jesus says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, we aren't told exactly what Jesus is responding to. Is Jesus responding to the Father? Is Jesus responding to his disciples? Now, I don't personally think so, because he addresses the generations. And so it seems to be that he's responding to the scribes, that he's a little bent out of shape over the fact that they're still arguing and trying to figure out who he is, that they're is still this sense of, is Jesus the Messiah? And he says, this faithless generation, they're always seeking a sign, which he will say in other places. And he's like, no sign will be given to you. We're not gonna do this for a sign. That's not why God does miracles, you know? Um, And so he seems to be exasperated by them, but we aren't told exactly. But then he does say, bring the boy to me. And he addresses the father, who then says to him, if you can do anything, Boy, oh boy, Jesus is like, if? (laughs) And he kind of chides the Father a little bit. And he says, look, all things are possible to those who believe. And then we hear one of the most humble statements in the Bible has been alluded to, a beautiful statement from the Father. I believe, help my unbelief. Ah, that we would all pray that God would help our unbelief and continue to strengthen us in the faith to know who our God is, and to know that all things are possible to those who believe. And then he concludes, and we're going to pick up there at the end of verse 28. And he says, and verse 28 says, and when he had entered to the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, I don't know about you, when I first read that statement, it was honestly a little unsatisfactory because I don't know what Jesus is talking about. What does he mean is this kind? You know, I mean, is it because it's a mute demon or was it because it was an epileptic demon? Um, I mean, are we supposed to like dive into the study of demonology? Like what's he referencing with this kind? But if you take a step back, you understand Because it's very odd. This is one of those rare occasions who the disciples aren't befuddled at all by what Jesus said. You know, I mean, we've kind of watched the disciples coming along in Mark 9, and they tend to miss things every now and then. But this one they totally got. And what they get and what we need to get is that this isn't about demons at all. It almost doesn't matter the kind. This is about prayer. This is about understanding that our power is in knowing And being connected to the real Jesus. You see that's what matters. If we're looking just for a source of power. If we're looking just to do some wonderful magical tricks. um, Or whatever it might be we think of as miracles. Then we're worshiping the wrong Jesus. Because that's not what Jesus came to do. God is not in the business of making demigods out of us. So that we can go off and show magical tricks to people. And make them happy. If however. If what we're looking for is to be connected intimately, as we have seen Jesus wants to be, to the source of power that makes all things possible to those who believe, then Jesus says, come and get plugged in. And prayer is the means by which we get plugged in. If we want the real thing, then we need to be praying to the real God. Prayer is our lifeline to the Lord. And that's why the disciples had no questions about this, right? The one thing the disciples have seen Jesus do is pray. Get up early to pray. Stay late to pray. I mean, Jesus is going, you know, God the Son is going to pray to God the Father before he raises Lazarus from the dead. Does anybody believe that God the Son couldn't raise Lazarus? No. But Jesus was in constant communication with his Father so that they would always be on the same page. And the disciples had seen this wherever they went. And so the one thing they were not confused about was the power of prayer. And so when Jesus says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, they understand that prayer is the source. Prayer is when we bring the real us to the real Jesus. It can be on your knees, it can be standing, it can be in your closet, your prayer closet, it can be as you're driving down the highway. Right? The Bible encourages us, as Rob has been teaching at Truth Seekers, that we are to pray at all times and in all manner, is what the Bible actually teaches. That we are staying continuously connected to the source of our life. And as we sit at Jesus' feet in prayer, that is where God reveals himself to us. And as Jesus becomes transfigured in our understanding of who he is, as we see his glory, you know what that's going to do? That's going to create in us the type of belief that makes all things possible. And that is what Jesus is explaining to them. That is the type of belief when we know God for who he is that makes all things possible. That is the real thing. And that is what God offers us. When we come, deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. Now, before I end, I do have to say, if there's anybody here who has not come to that place, if there's anybody here who does not know the real Jesus, don't leave today without getting to know him. If you want the real thing, you're not going to find it in Coke. You're not going to, either kinds. You're not going to find it in anything that is in this world, but you will find it in the living God who promises an eternity of his glory, his familiarity, and his intimacy with us. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for your great love for us and your desire to know us intimately and to be known by us in an intimate and familiar way. Father, what a promise you give but a promise you give to reveal yourself to those who would come to you and open themselves up to your truth, who would lay at their feet and desire to know you. You've said, uh, Lord God, that for those who come and seek you earnestly, that you will reveal yourself. Father, may we have a continuous revelation of who you are, and may we go out and want to share that with the world as we see you, as Peter, James, and John did. May that become our witness and our testimony as to the goodness of the God that we serve.